Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage Podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage. Hi, I'm Greg Gregory, founder and host of the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast that's dedicated to the growth and development of teamwork, leadership, and culture. We're excited to be into our fifth season. Wow, it's hard to believe. Pandemic has taken us all the way through, and we're in our fifth season here. We now have been downloaded in 57 countries around the world and excited to be growing as we speak. Today, we're fortunate to be joined by a gentleman from uh, here in the U.S. We use the term across the pond. I think you guys do as well there, uh, using the term across the pond in London, England, uh, right in the U.K., uh, and we're excited to have him because he's going to share some things with us about being a little bit different and how he got to where he is today. But not just that, it's, it's how we can build the right culture with our organizations and working with people and some of the challenges he's overcome. And I think from talking with him, a lot of our listeners are going to be able to really, really relate here. So well, let's talk a little bit about him. Um, Patrick Coots is a gentleman who's after 20 years as a high school teacher. That would be enough to drive me a little crazy, just working with high school students in general. He realized after 20 years, he wasn't prepared for business. And you know what? The kids aren't prepared for business either. So after 20 years, not being prepared, he ended up meeting Josh, a serial entrepreneur. That's fascinating. And Josh at 19 knew that he was somebody who could start businesses. And it was kind of interesting going there. So they began to understand the future of learning and be able to build that. So Mindstone Learning is about helping people really build that mindset of how they can grow and learn. Over the past few years, he has metamorphed from being a teacher to a solid product manager, as well as a leader. He's one of, uh, he's the co-founder and one of three directors at Mindstone Learning. And he's had some time and great successes, but he's also had some challenges along the way. And that's kind of the exciting part. We often hear about all the successes, things people have done right. But I want to talk today a little bit about some of those challenges. So, ladies and gentlemen, the Teamwork Advantage, Patrick, welcome to the Teamwork Advantage. It's such a pleasure to be here, Greg. And thank you for that very generous introduction. Um, it's always nice to hear my story presented so eloquently. So thank you. <laughs> well, I looked at it as like, I was fascinated the fact that, first off, how did you decide you wanted to go into education? Were you a young child knowing you wanted to teach? Oh, uh, you know what? Uh, like so many people, uh, I went into uh, my career because it was what I knew. Of course, everybody knows something about school because they went through it themselves. And I used to say that there are two kinds of teachers. There are teachers for whom it was the happiest days of their life and they want to, when they get out of college, they want to go back there again because it's where they were happy. And there are teachers for whom it was a place of unhappiness and they want to put right the wrongs that they suffered mm. as children by going back in there and, and, uh, and taking on that quest to uh, build happier and better educational experiences. And I guess for me, I was more of that second kind. I've, I had not been fulfilled in uh, school myself, and I wanted to, to put it right. I wanted to go back and make a difference in people's lives. 
Yeah, it's interesting you say that because one of the terms I've used for years is when it came to school, I was in the part of class that made the upper half possible. Um, <laughs> I, I hated school, but well, I, love alone, I love yeah, to learn. I love to learn. Well, that, that, that really says it all, doesn't it? Because if, if it's possible to hate the experience of being in school while also loving learning, we've got something really badly broken in our system. And I, I could talk all day long about, about the things that are wrong with the way we do education. Um, but, uh, but, but your listeners would, would get bored, so we'll, we'll, we'll gloss over that quickly, apart from to say that both the American and British education systems are based in ideas which are hundreds of years old already. And even at the time that you or I were going to school, it was already wildly out of date. Mm-hmm. And since then, with the invention of the Internet and smartphones and, and so many other advances and changes in our societies, including the upcoming automation, which is going to disrupt so many industries and job markets, uh, it really is time to rethink how we, we go about uh, learning and education. And, um, and I, I co-founded Mindstone to reposition the whole game around the learner and not the institution or the subject matter or the employer, but really, really focus on the power of self-directed learning, which from the sound of it, that would have been you, even from, from when you were a schoolboy. Um, that self-directed spark. The self-directed learning, as long as I've got somebody uh, keeping my feet on the track would help. <laughs> uh, but is that because you get curious and go wandering off the track? Um, as I use the term, I see squirrels every five feet. <laughs> all right yeah so that that makes a lot of sense but the thing is that we we're not very good at celebrating that curiosity right when mm-hmm. you when you see squirrels every five feet and you go oh look at that look at that let me go off there and follow that uh train of thought that's that's something to 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 delight in right this is this is the joy of learning and we stamp it out of people both in our formal education system and also in our work-based learning we right. we Act like it's a bad thing to be curious. Um, and uh, being goal-directed is valuable, but, but curiosity is a value too. We shouldn't, right. we shouldn't go that. And it's just my challenge with that is I'm focused in one direction, then I go over here, and then, wait a minute, I'm over here, and now I'm over here, and mm-hmm. wait a minute, somewhere I've got to get back to my point. And that's where, personally, uh, I've always struggled, whether it's education or not. But let's let's talk a little bit about what Mindstone is and who are you trying to help? Who are you who is Mindstone looking to help? Right now, Mindstone is focused on people in the workplace who are self-directed learners, people who consume a lot of content but struggle to get value out of it because it comes in so many different forms and it's coming at you from so many different directions. And it's very difficult to pull out the key insights, put them all together into one place, share it with other people. And, um, and systematically extract value from it. So that's the, the, our current target user, that workplace professional, we call them work athletes, people whose who's, uh, elite sport is work. Um, and the reason we're building for those people is that they have a very, very clear problem. They are fully aware of the fact that they're, that they're consuming huge amounts of content, they're working very long hours, they're trying to stay ahead, preferably stay in front of the competition, and they're struggling to keep on top of everything. 
And by building tools for those people as our first users, we've uh, validated our proof of concept that just bringing together all of the various forms of information into one place and organizing it and getting value out of it is, is a value proposition that resonates. Our long-term goal though, is for Mindstone to be for everybody because everybody needs to learn. And the idea that is so wildly out of date now, of course, of education being something that you do in the first part of your life, and then you finish learning and you go off into the workplace, that's over. Mm. We all know it's over. Yeah. Um, well, my expression we, has always been, if you're not growing, you're dying. So if you're not learning and growing, you're dying. Well, exactly. So knowing that, I, th I think 10, 15 years ago, you might have experienced a lot of pushback from people saying, do we really need this? Do people know that there is a problem there that they need to solve? But today, especially in the wake of COVID, where people uh, had were forced to reflect on their working lives, um, that's not an argument that we really need to have anymore. We don't need to persuade people that, that learning and upskilling uh, is something that they, they need to do for their careers and uh, in order to stay ahead of the coming automation. People yeah. understand that that's already, it's already knocking at the door. They need to- Yeah, that's where I wanted to go was, did COVID ramp this up for you guys? I mean, your, your Mindstone's only a little over three years old, so you kind of got started right at the edge of COVID, am I right? You're absolutely right. I actually walked out of high school um, the same day that every teacher in the country walked out. Uh, I left the teaching career during the very first lockdown um, and Mindstone got started right then, um, which made for some, some quirky aspects to my company. The fact, for example, that we were remote first by, by force uh, meant that I didn't actually meet some of my colleagues in person uh, for nearly a year. Uh, we were working together on Zoom for, for nearly a year uh, before I actually got to meet these guys. So that contributed to the shaping of the culture of the company. But, um, but as you can imagine, uh, starting a learning startup uh, during COVID had an effect on the shape of the company and our earliest users. A lot of our early users, for example, were students, even though we, we weren't building for them because students suddenly were stuck at home and needing tools to be able to get value out of their online reading. Mm -hmm. We've since pivoted back to where, where we always intended to be with the uh, adults in the workplace, but, uh, but COVID definitely shaped that, that initial experience. Mm -hmm. I want to take a little step back if we can, because mm. uh, prior to uh, uh, getting the podcast going, we, you and I were chatting about Josh. Mm. And some fascinating things. He's a serial entrepreneur. So you're coming out of teaching in the midst of COVID. Now, did you know Josh prior to, or did you just by happenstance meet him or what happened? So and then tell, everybody, tell everybody the story about meeting yeah, him and getting going. Absolutely. So I met Josh in the summer of 2019. Um, so obviously before COVID was, a, was a, a, even a thing. And... I was introduced to him because he was just getting out of his, I think his third or his fourth startup at that time. Mm -hmm. now, this was a company called Super Awesome, which is the world's largest kid internet safety company. Uh, it was bought by Epic Games. 
Um, and he was just coming to the end of that and thinking about what's my next challenge? I want to do something in education and learning. And so uh, we were introduced by a mutual friend um, uh, who said, hey, look, you should meet Patrick. He's a, he's a teacher. You know, you'll have a good chat. And I got talking to this guy and I, I was blown away by his energy and his, his enthusiasm. But the other thing that really struck me was that Joshua had that curiosity of somebody who wants to find out that he's wrong. He wants to find out that he's wrong real quick so he can stop being wrong as soon as he can. And you realize how far many people in this life will go to avoid being wrong and avoid finding out that they're wrong. And as a result, most people will carry on being wrong for ages. <laughs> but just, That's a just great way to like, look at that. Yeah, Josh is like, okay, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong. And so, so we had this really productive conversation. And at the end of that, he was like, okay, let's, let's have another call. Let's, let, let's get together for another drink. And I had a second and a third meeting with this guy. And I got more and more excited about, uh, about what he was wanting to do mm -hmm. because he was wanting to come at the science of learning from a really evidence-based perspective. But he's also got the hustle of, uh, of an, a startup entrepreneur. Right now, as I was now, saying to with you, his before, experience, he, he's what in his 40s? Uh, no, he's younger than me, he's, he's 10 years younger than me. <laughs> so, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in my mid 40s, he's in his mid 30s. Um, but he had his started his first company when he was 19, uh, a website building company. He hired one of his school friends to be to, to do, do the coding for him at the age of 19, and, and another friend that he made a, uh, met a friend of the video arcade. Uh, and was like, hey, do you want to do you want to design our websites? Um, and gave her her first job too. Um, when she, she was twenty, he was nineteen. And these people then went on and worked with him in different companies of his. So that currently on our team of twelve, um, there's three or four people who've worked with this guy since they were kids together, which I always say is a, a massive vote of confidence and you know they we, we gripe and bitch about each other but the truth is that these people would not have come together if they didn't trust the guy to to do what's right i need to get a right buzzer i need to get a buzzer every time the word trust pops up because that word comes up in every single podcast it seems like oh, because absolutely. you've got to have trust yeah, well, it's you know they say people uh, people join companies because of the boss, and they leave companies because of the boss, um, and and it's so true because because culture is formed by the things that we do every day, and so um, and so the fact that Josh is somebody who means exactly what he says is it, it, it makes it so much easier to build a culture of transparency, and maybe we'll we'll talk some more about that going forwards but um just to, to wrap up the, the chat about how we got started so I, I got introduced to the guy and I was super excited about about building a scientifically valid learning platform I I quit teaching to throw my lot in with this guy and um and we're now two years in just over two years um and it has just been a relentless roller coaster of learning for me um and and you were saying before about uh, about if you're not growing, then you're dying. I feel like my life has completely relaunched itself because I have been on this incredible learning journey for myself over the last couple of years. 
And I feel like I'm only just beginning, you know, there's, there's so much ahead of us. And that's exciting because when you're excited about learning, then that comes off on the employees that you're working with. And as product manager, and we talked earlier again, you're the product manager, if you will, director of products for Mindstone. Your product happens to be learning, but you are not in learning and development. <laughs> That's right. I, I, I called myself the chief learning officer, um, <clears throat> and people kept thinking that I was, you know, a member of the HR team doing the internal training for, for some giant corporate. Uh, and nothing could be further from the truth. We are a learning company, and so our product, as you say, is learning. And what I what I own really is the problem space. My career in teaching has taught me about the challenges of learning and some of the opportunities coming out of scientific research into learning. Um, and so I, I own the the product space, I, I the, the the problem space, I should say. Um, and it's my job to try to formulate in such a way that the team can then be creative and come up with solutions um, to formulate that problem in such a way that people can, can, can come together and align around solving problems for our learners. And when you're talking about bringing the team together, your Mindstone is a very small team right now. I think mm. you said it's oh, what, yeah. 10, 10 people. Yeah, 10 or 12. Okay. Yeah, a couple of part-timers. So, yeah. Okay. So you're, you're bringing people together. And in reading things about you and going through your LinkedIn, I started realizing there's a term you used um, talking about the imposter. Uh, yes. One of the challenges that you look at now, is that in the hiring process when you're trying to hire somebody or we've all gone through a hiring where we're interviewing somebody and they sound really, really good. And then the first day they come in, we realize we just hired the evil twin of the person we interviewed. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, listen, I, I, I'm going gonna, I, I'm gonna to explain that when, when talking about the imposter syndrome, I, I was mainly thinking of myself. And that's what I mean by that is that coming into a, a tech startup as a high school teacher, I'm supremely confident in the classroom. I'm supremely confident. You can put me in front of an audience of two or three hundred people and I will be absolutely comfortable and at ease talking to them. Mm-hmm. But put me in a room full of super smart engineers and designers, and uh, and these are people who are really at the top of their field. Uh, we like to talk about functioning as an elite sports team. Um, I felt like the imposter. I felt like, do I belong here? Am I good enough to bring value to this team? And... And that was the sense in which I, I used the word imposter. I, I've, I felt like an imposter at first, like so many people do. When you begin a job and you're, you're faking it till you make it, and you're trying to figure out how can, I, how can I justify my existence and role within this team? And it took me a long time to, to reach the point where I felt like I knew my value. And I knew that what I was bringing to the team was adding value to the company. Now, to go back to the kind of imposter you were talking about with hiring practices, now that's another matter altogether. Um, and I will say that we have, we have for the most part, been very fortunate with our hires uh, at Mindstone. And we've never had anybody that, that we regretted hiring. But what we have had is people who were the right fit at the right time for the team and then we progressed beyond that stage. 
and they were no longer the right person for that role. And what I will say about that is that total honesty and transparency is the, is the only way to have those conversations. And when that team member reached the point where their journey with us was over because we'd grown beyond the point where their skill set was right for us, we were able to have a conversation about this is what you've done for us. This is the value you've given. We are now at a different stage. It's time to, to, to go our separate ways. And that person actually turned back to, uh, to, to us and said, that's fantastic. Let me give me your notes on how I can do better next time you hire me. Because there was that sense of we have we have done a good enough job here that you will hire me again someday. Some yeah, other, that's, that's, uh, that's the mindset of not burning the bridge that you've been on. Never burn the bridge. Never burn the yeah. bridge. So yeah, so so far, as I say, we've been we've been fortunate, but it it has meant not making hires. It's better to just not hire than compromise, make a hire, and then regret it. Um, and I've we've interviewed people where where we're like. This is just, it's not good enough. We're not, we're not satisfied that this person was telling us the truth. Um, and under those circumstances, you know, when you're talking to somebody in the interview, you mentioned before about you, they, they're great in interview and then on day one, their evil twin shows up. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's a separate problem, right? But if during the interview, you can tell the person does not care. Well, I, I don't care how, how, how I don't yeah. care how, how, good your resume is unless you're passionate about about this i mean early stage startups you've got to be passionate you've got to be hungry more than more than having the right skill set actually because smart people can can train and 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 adapt and i hope that i'm an example of that right right i I hope that i'm an example of somebody who trained and adapted so if, if you hire smart passionate people who are hungry and want to grow it kind of doesn't matter so much whether they're a perfect fit technically in terms of the, the particular role. It's more important that they're, they're eager to, 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 to grow and learn and adapt and, and bring value to the company. Right. They want to come in there. And so that, that ties us in. So maybe they don't have the skill set now, but they're not faking it. So they're not the imposter. They don't feel yeah. like they don't belong. But I want to address something you said a minute ago really resonated with me. Okay. And that was you felt that you were the imposter coming into Mindstone. How did you overcome that? Because let's face it, there are people today who are coming out thinking they're ready to go into a position, ready to jump right in, and they want to start in at the top. Mm. Okay? And they're really not ready. So they start kind of trying to fake that part. But then on the other part, once they get there, they realize, whoa, I don't necessarily know this. Am I in over my head? So what did you do? What did Patrick do to try and overcome that feeling of not feeling like you belonged? Okay. Now, there's there's three or four steps to my journey here, okay? Okay. Um, So one thing is I, I got help, right? Because I could see that I needed to grow fast and so i got help i i I have a number of mentors um uh who i I meet with regularly and i can can shoot the breeze with those people because they're outside the company but they've been there um so that's the, the 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 first thing is 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 reaching out for help now um back in january 
I, I took on a very expensive, um, but I think worth every penny uh, executive coach. I'm spending serious money and sacrificing my own salary to have that executive coach. And I think that the fact that I put my own money on the line reflects the seriousness with which I'm approaching that. Yes. And I, and I said to my coach at the beginning, okay, I want to make better decisions. I want to be wrong less often. And six months later in my, in my uh, meeting with her, reflecting on my journey with her, I realized that was, I had the wrong goal. It's not that I need to be wrong less often. I need to be opinionated and confident about my, about my own areas of expertise and also humble about the things that I don't know. And I need to put ideas out there, which if they are wrong, they'll turn out to be wrong quickly. And it goes back to the thing I was saying about Josh earlier on, of wanting to find out that you're wrong. It's not that I needed to stop being wrong is that I needed to have the confidence to express my views and express my ideas, but also in such a way that we'd find out quickly every time I was wrong. Another way of putting this, let's just to, to, to give an, a, a, a comparison. The person in our team who comes up with the most ideas is the chief exec. He's an idea machine. Every, every morning before breakfast, he's already come up with three or four ideas for, to make the product better. And most of them are wrong. Of course they are, because he's human. But the point is that he's not scared of voicing ideas and putting them out there and finding out that it's not going to work and go, okay, that's great. That's another idea. Cross that off. Because if you produce 100 ideas and five of them are brilliant and you realize which ones are brilliant and you follow them, that's better than producing two ideas and having a 50% hit rate of getting mm -hmm. it right. So that, so that for me is a huge part of, of, of that, of breaking through that imposter syndrome is not being scared to voice an idea and not being scared to find out that you're wrong. In fact, get hungry for being wrong. Um, and a, a, a good example of this, actually, uh, when we interview our users, our customers, uh, to see how the, they like the product and what their thoughts are about it. I used to get super excited when somebody would give us a 10 out of 10 net promoter score. You know, they, they, they just loved our Mindstone. I get so excited, I show it to the team. And I had to train myself in the last year to get excited about the guys who hate it. Because the guys who hate my product, they'll tell me what to fix. The people who love it, well, I, I didn't learn anything from them. I mean, I get a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. Mm -hmm. I get a nice, warm glow. That, oh, yeah. They love and we need product. a little brag file every now and then. Oh, you, you bet. And, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. So that's the warm and fuzzy feeling. But when it comes to making my company better, the people who hate what we do, and, and I, I had a problem, and I wanted you to solve it, and you didn't solve it, and here's why. Oh, I love those guys, because mm -hmm. they're going to help me be better. So, so, so the, the truth hurts, but, but you've got to learn to love it. Yeah. Um, we had a gentleman, actually a couple of folks that have been on our podcast over the years have talked about uh, their organizations and they use the term they celebrate. And I use air quotes. They celebrate failure. Oh yeah. Because when you celebrate your failures, when something doesn't work, now you know what to fix. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I want to 
echo that massive chorus of yes from me. Because as a teacher, this is something, by the way, I'm just going to go all the way back to my teaching career. Think about this. In school, high school, college, you never get the chance to fail. Every single uh, uh, test, it's you're expected to pass it, preferably, you know, only dropping a mark or two here or there. But really, you know, you're aiming for perfect grades, which would indicate that there was nothing to learn from that test. Whereas what you really want is to find out your areas of weakness so you can fix them. And also, we don't really make it possible for people to try something, have it fail, try something else, have that fail, try something else, third time, fourth time, fifth time, finally get somewhere. That iterative process of, of experimenting, we just don't do it. And as a result, people aren't ready for the workplace. Right. The only class I think I ever took that allowed me to fail a little bit was uh, my sciences in high school mm -hmm. because we would try something. Nope. That's not right. Okay. Tweak this, change this. That allowed mm -hmm. me to learn a little something that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the rest and, of it and, was just memorization. Yeah. Now, I, I will say the, the, the best science teachers are really, really good at this because of course it, it is the scientific method. Don't just, don't just, you know, formulate a hypothesis and test to prove it right. Figure out what would happen if you were wrong and devise an experiment that would show exactly that. That process of falsification is something that, that, that science, when done well, allows, trains the mind to look for. How would I know if I was wrong? Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about leading the team and building a culture. Um, I think you've used the term building a culture of fearless feedback. That's a fascinating term. Mm. So why don't you kind of define the term fearless feedback and then tell us kind of what it means, but then tell us how you actually implement that. So the first thing I'm going to say about fearless feedback, and this is in the context of a small company, 10 or 12 people on the team, everybody feed, feeds back to everybody else. Okay. That's, that's what we're, we're, we're wanting to, to make sure is that there is total transparency. Now, where does the fear come in? I think it's, it's widely acknowledged that receiving feedback can be hard, right? That being told this wasn't good enough, that wasn't as good as it could have been, or the way that you behaved on this, in this situation had a negative impact is difficult for the person receiving the feedback. Everyone knows that. What's less widely acknowledged is that unless they are psychopaths, the person giving the feedback is also scared. They're scared of harming the relationship with the person they're feeding back to. They're scared about damaging that person's motivation to perform and actually making a bad situation worse. And so there is fear on both sides of a feedback conversation and addressing that, creating a fearless um, uh, culture of feedback is about addressing both sides of that anxiety. Now, there are some really basic things that many of your listeners will already be familiar with, but I'm just gonna take a moment to spell out mm -hmm. that you that there are things that you can do that, that are acknowledged and effective ways of reducing that tension. Number one, make it about the performance and not the person, 
we use a situation behavior impact suggestion model. What was the situation? What did you do? What was the impact of the thing you did? And what would I suggest that you would do differently or think about doing differently next time? That model means that it's not about you're always screwing up in this way or you're always doing that in some generalization, which is unhelpful, but instead anchoring the feedback in really concrete, specific things. Okay. Now, let me, so let, far, me, so basic, let me just interrupt for a second. And I apologize. What you're talking about is providing negative feedback. Can mm -hmm. that also work in giving positive feedback? 100% yes. And I'm going to come on to that in just one second. Okay, sorry. Um, so no, 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 it's all good. It's all good. So um, the second thing is that the person receiving the feedback has ownership of it. And so it's not just a case of you, you have to take this. The person receiving the feedback always must thank the person for giving it because it's an acknowledgement of the fact that it can be a scary thing to give feedback. So thank you for giving this but then what am i going to choose to do with it maybe i'm going to to, to, to uh, adopt your suggestion or maybe i'm going to reject your suggestion i own my behavior as a receive uh, receiving feedback from you so i thank you for it and then i choose what to do next now you were talking about positive feedback this is this is where everything i've said so far has been pretty standard but here's what a way in which we've innovated radically as a company we share feedback privately, but there is a strong culture when receiving feedback for the person who receives it to then publish the entire piece of feedback, including their response to a public channel within my company so everybody sees it. And that is owned by the recipient. If I think that the feedback that I receive is, is not fair, I don't have to publish it publicly, but by doing so, I provide the whole team the opportunity to learn from this thing I just learned. I also show the team that I'm not scared to receive that feedback and that I own it. And that it's a ballsy thing to do to put it out there and say, hey, I just got this, this tough feedback, but I'm so unafraid that I'm going to share it with the whole team. And everybody from the chief exec down does that. And of course, we also do it with the positive feedback. And that's an opportunity to brag. Mm -hmm. So when the pub positive feedback comes in, that goes out in the public channel and everybody's cheering and, 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 and celebrating. Absolutely. But, when the, but it's the negative feedback, which is shared by the person that received it as a choice, which is the most powerful because it's a way of signaling, not just this is a company that, that shares its feedback, but this is a company where nobody needs to be afraid of showing that they have just been right. told off for having screwed up. Right. Make it and that's because they've got, they've got that level of vulnerability trust already built. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. One of the and things, the one of the things I on. do in my sessions and we talk about is something you just hit on, and I thought you said it very eloquently, is about sharing the knowledge. I've always looked at the sharing the knowledge, you know, just like, hey, I learned something here from a technical point. Let me share it with the team. Mm. You're now talking about what I learned that I messed up. So let me share that with the team so that that starts to build us a little stronger. And that's just powerful. There's nine steps I've got in my model. And one of them is share the knowledge. So that's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would just, I would just add that when I receive difficult feedback, I am emotionally involved in it, and it may take me some time to process that and, and, and accept it. 
But when I see someone else getting a very similar piece of feedback, because I'm not emotionally involved, I can calmly look at that and go, oh, yeah, that probably applies to me too. And so it's easier for me to see it about a third person uh, I, than, than it is to see it about myself. We yes, all have it, a blind the, spot. The key thing ourselves. is what you said is seeing it about the third person. That's kind of easy. Mm. But then having the, the audacity to say to yourself, I do that too. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to internalize that your way, that's not an easy thing. It's not. And we're all at different stages in terms of our self-awareness and our, uh, our ability to evaluate the way in which we behave uh, and th the impact of that behavior upon others. This is 3D chess, right? <laughs> when, you're, when you're trying to figure out how the way you speak affects others. Right. That, that's hard to know. And so you need to give it time and you need to, to, to really listen to the signals coming back from other people. To give you a concrete example, um, quite early in our journey, I got a feedback from Josh, my chief exec, saying, Patrick, you've got to watch out because your negativity, when you're critical of an idea, the whole team listens. And they all think that the sky is falling when you're negative about something because you have the authority as the senior person on the team with the experience and expertise around learning so watch your negativity and I, I was just like I was so upset by that but then I reflected and reflected upon it and eventually I felt calm enough to then put that feedback out in front of the whole team and when I put it out in front of the whole team everybody was reaction was that's so true you know that Thank you for sharing that. Yes, yes. Let's think about whether we're, when we're being negative, let's let's think about how that may be affecting one another. And it helped me to adopt a much more positive and encouraging persona in my in my working life. So yeah, definitely definite learning for me. That was a big one. Uh, you said eventually you shared that. If you don't mind me asking, how long was the time before you felt comfortable oh, enough to it was, share that? It, it was it was a good three or four days. I sat on that the first. Yeah, day, I thought you were going to say three or four months. Oh no 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 no! I was furious. But the, the thing, I, as a teacher, uh, I'm I'm quite accustomed to managing high stress situations. Yeah, because in a classroom, things can get heated fast, right? Mm -hmm. So so my wind down time is pretty quick. I I, I wouldn't I, I don't generally stew on things for more than a day. So I was furious for one day. And then I was sort of a little bit hurt and upset for one day. And then on the third day, I was like, yeah, fair enough. You're right. I'm, I'm going to share okay. this publicly. But for a lot, a lot of people, you, you're right to say it could have been months because a lot of people take a long time to emotionally process stuff. And that, that has to be okay. One of the things in the culture of feedback, and you brought it up by talking about your CEO. Mm -hmm. So this fearless feedback works sideways down as well as up through your chain of command is that right absolutely um the, the i don't know how to build a culture of fearless feedback without having it come from the very very top because the culture of a company comes from its leaders and i'm as a co-founder obviously i play a massive role in that but if I didn't have 100% confidence that my chief exec is going to walk the walk, 
and not just talk the talk. It's not going to just be lip service. I don't think it will be possible. So to our listeners who are in organizations where that commitment is not present, I think it, it would be naive to imagine that you can manage up and change the culture without buy-in from, mm -hmm. from the very top. So Josh, uh, he gives tough feedback all the time, but he also takes it and expects to take it. And it's, it's a helpful thing that on the team, there are people who've known him since he was a kid and will not stand for any crap. You know, that, that, that's right. definitely part of the picture. So when we're thinking about doing this, you're talking about working it through your CEO. A lot of our listeners are on teams that are in organizations that have hundreds, if not thousands of employees. They can't turn around and give that feedback to the CEO because they're so far removed. Mm -hmm. Is what you're talking about, can that be worked within a team of 10, 15, 20 people inside a large organization? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question that uh, your circle of influence is uh, smaller than, than the circle of, uh, of, of input or of effects on you. But that circle of influence, the people you work with immediately and on a day to day basis, you can contribute to and shape the dynamics of that team uh, every day uh, of your working life. But it has to start with you. Uh, whether you're a leader or a member of a team, and you were talking before about how people uh, are trained in leadership but not followership, but a lot of being a great team player is about personal integrity and doing the thing which you know is right, even when it comes at a personal cost. And so being humble and being transparent and sharing the things that you've learned, even when it came at a personal cost, is the first step toward building trust within your team such that other members of your team feel safe to do the same thing. And I think that any team can do that. Good. I want to make sure because I didn't want people to get the misconception, oh, well, that only works with the small companies or that only works when you're talking to the senior suite. This works throughout an organization regardless mm -hmm. of your level. Absolutely. And, and don't get me wrong. I, I do think it's hard. I think that, but, but that, the, the fact that it's difficult to build transparency, openness, and frankness of feedback within teams has nothing to do with the size of the organization. It, it, it will be scary and difficult, no matter where you are, to be humble and to be vulnerable and to share honestly and truthfully. But that's something that, 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 applies irrespective of the size of the organization. I think it, it's just, okay. that's just human nature. Good. You know, we've been going for about 40 minutes already and time has just flown by. Um, the information that you shared um, about your story, I think is just awesome. It, it shows that you can make a change at some point in your career and go in a whole different direction, which I think is just amazing. But the, your idea of fearless feedback, your, uh, the ideas that you've learned, I'm going to encourage people to go back and listen to segments of this again so they can really, really pick up what you're talking about and then how to apply it. Um, the biggest thing is for people to figure out how to apply things. You can give them steps, but sometimes those steps need to be tweaked within themselves. Uh, 
And I think your ideas are just great foundations. I'd be a little remiss if I didn't ask you about your guitars hanging in the background. <laughs> so for those just listening, uh, Patrick, in his background here has, I'm looking, I think it was a four guitars, five guitars. There's, um, there's three on the wall and then there's the 12 string down underneath there. And I, I, I must admit, there's a couple more in another room. I, I, okay, I've so collected. we're not talking, these are not just little props to look good on the wall. <laughs> no. So, so we've got a Canadian arch top, um, uh, an Ibanez uh, six-string electric, a fretless bass, and then I've got one of those lovely 12-strings. Um, oh, um, uh, Overture is the 12-string. Is the, the so, yeah, I've, I, I, I'm, I am a musician. I consider myself more of a songwriter than um, than, than uh, a, a technically virtuoso uh, guitarist. Um, it's a great way of expressing curi- uh, creativity. And I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, though, in the two years since starting the um, uh, Mindstone, I've I've only written like I think I've written three songs in the last two years. Normally, it would be I, I would write two or three songs uh, a month. And the reason is that my creativity has been channeled into the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the business is my baby right now. And so sadly, I'm, I'm so ashamed to, to admit this. The guitars are a little dusty right now. Ooh. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's tragic. But um, this, is, this is something that as, as Mindstone grows and, and becomes more successful, I'm sure I will carve out some time for creativity again right. in, that, in that dimension of creativity. And I was thinking the guitars, you'd pull them down whenever you get stressed to the point might start to play it and relax you and get you back into the right spirit. No, I'll tell you what I do to relax and get in the right spirit is I go jogging. Um, like, the, like many work athletes, I've, I try to extract value from every minute. And so I'm listening to audio books while, while pint pounding out the miles um, uh, on my morning run. And that's, that's what gets me into the, the right headspace. And that's great. We all need to find our thing that gets us into that right headspace. Uh, whether it's running, playing music, singing, sleeping, meditating, we all have our own ways. And so that's, that's powerful, especially in this crazy time that we're in. Patrick, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the Teamwork Advantage. Um, hopefully we'll have you back here down the road with some more uh, stories that you've been able to do. Um, we'll get this shared. Remember, folks, Teamwork Advantage where we share skills and ideas that you can start to implement immediately. And Patrick has definitely shared some of those. We get together once a week with you on the Teamwork Advantage. And when you join the Teamwork Advantage, remember, having a good day is just being average. When you listen to the Teamwork Advantage, we know that you're not average. So go make today an excellent and exceptional day. Till next week, take care. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.